0: everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Stephen Kotkin on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Uncivil Society, 1989, and the Implosion of the Communist Establishment. He co-authored this book with Jan Gross. You probably know that civil society is one of the hottest terms in contemporary political discourse. I've just done a Google book search, on the phrase, and it returned 19,789 books. It's often applied to the events of 1989, the notion being that, quote-unquote, civil society rose up against communist tyranny and overthrew it. In this very well-argued book, Professor Kotkin shows that this interpretation is largely incorrect, that outside places like Poland, the opposition was very weak, that there was really nothing like civil society, at least as it's commonly understood in the Eastern European states. Rather, there was uncivil society, which is to say a kind of authoritarianism in which communist parties dominated the government and everything else. And when they collapsed, it was really their own mistakes and foolishness that brought them down. I really enjoyed talking to Stephen today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. We're talking to Stephen Kotkin today about uh, his terrific new book that he wrote with a contribution from Jan Gross called Uncivil Society, 1989 and the Implosion of the Communist Establishment. Uh, I, I, as you know, uh, if you're listening to this show regularly, uh, read these books. Um, I read this book uh, about a month ago, actually, and I doggedly, pursued Stephen to get an interview with him. He's a very busy guy, uh, and uh, after uh, a number of attempts, I've landed him, so he's here with us. As I said, it's a it's a really terrific book. As I said in the pre-interview with Stephen, one of the reasons it's a terrific book is that it has a, an actual thesis, which we'll come to in due time. But before we do that, Stephen, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm from the New York area. I went to college in upstate New York at Rochester. It's snowing out the window right now here. <laughs> and in Rochester, it used to snow a lot. Uh, we jumped out of the uh, third floor windows into the snowdrift and <laughs> survived. Um, four years at Rochester, I went as a pre-med. But uh, when I went to the molecular biology course in the hospital, which involved showing us how operations were done by the impressive surgeons. Uh, I I puked and then I lost consciousness. So my medical career ended there on the floor and I became an English poetry major. The English department insisted I needed an allied field, as it was called, to complete the major. And I said, well, I have four years of math up to differential equations. He said, no, that won't work for poetry. And I said, well, organic chemistry, no. They said, you need history. You need to take some history classes. So I took some history classes, and lo and behold, I went to graduate school at Berkeley in history and ended up with a Ph.D. Uh, this was during the Reagan years. And then completing my Ph.D., I went on a job market, and my first job was at Princeton University, of all places. Um, I arrived in September 1989, and the wall fell, the mm-hmm. Berlin Wall fell two months into my first course.
0: Wow. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Yeah. And then you wrote a number of books, actually, quite a number of books.
1: You yes, well, I really love writing. <laughs> yeah. And um, I got into the Russian history stuff by accident. The, the entire story, I think, is um, indicative of that. I went to Berkeley for for my Ph.D. in history in French history. Um, I I switched out of French history after one year into Central Europe, Habsburg history. I learned the Czech language. But uh, there was no advisor in Central European history. The one guy who did that stuff told me he wasn't taking graduate students anymore. So I was kind of stranded and I began learning Russian my third year of graduate school. Instead of taking my Ph.D. exams, I had to postpone my exams for a year, and so I started learning the Russian alphabet. And lo and behold, uh, four years later, I was a professor of Russian history at
0: Princeton. How do you like that? That's strange. Who was that Habsburgist? Was it? Um... Yes, William Slotman. Yes, I actually I, I went to Berkeley as well as you know, and I, I taught for Professor Slotman late in his career. Um, It was actually a little bit too late in his career, if you know what I mean.
1: He was a really good undergraduate teacher and dedicated to the undergraduates. Yes. Uh, However, um, he had some personal issues, and in any case, uh, it was too late as far as he was concerned to take graduate students. So I uh, found, uh, with the great fortune of the Berkeley History Department being a fabulous department, I found uh, Reginald Zelnick and Martin Malia, the Mm -hmm. two Russianists, And I took courses with them, first not in Russian history but the general European survey Mm -hmm.
2: uh,
1: from the French Revolution to to the modern times to the present. And each of them was just a fabulous, excellent teacher. They were different politically. They were different in method. I learned from both of them and absorbed a tremendous amount from each one. Both Mm -hmm. Zelnick and Malia I consider mentors. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was uh, that part of of my switch into Russian history was their influence, the fact that two such fantastic teachers were available. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And part was that the French philosopher Michel Foucault who came to Berkeley in the early 1980s, uh, once told me in conversation that would be an interesting idea if someone could apply his methods to the study of Stalinism. Hmm. And as a 22-year-old young impressionable graduate student who was talking to Foucault every day, it was sort of like (laughs) if you went to uh, Switzerland in the 1880s and started talking to Nietzsche, Friedrich Hmm. Nietzsche, Mm-hmm. In any case, I talked to Foucault quite a lot. He told me um, uh, that uh, about this idea, applying his work to the study of Stalinism. There were these two great Russianists at Berkeley, Martin Mealy and Reginald Zelnik. And also, when I went to study Czech language, I went to Prague. And the first day I got to Prague, there was a giant demonstration. And I said, what is going on here? I made my way up to the front and it was a peace rally. Mm -hmm. This was in the early 1980s. It was a peace rally, and the speaker was Gus Newport, Mm -hmm. the mayor of Berkeley, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, at this uh, communist-sponsored peace rally in Prague in the early 1980s, and I became fascinated with just how different the communist systems were Mm -hmm. from what I thought they were like, Mm -hmm. having grown up in the United States.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so this combination of seeing a communist system firsthand in Czechoslovakia Having had these two fantastic teachers of European history, Zelnik and Malia, and then having had conversations with Michel Foucault, I said, what the hell, I'll try it. And I Mm -hmm. started, as I said, learning Russian, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't easy it was very difficult to bootstrap Russian at that advanced <laughs> yeah. stage of graduate school. I got to tell you, I'm not sure it was a brilliant idea to start learning Russian that late.
0: Yeah, no. That, actually, that, that's a really terrific story, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the, those people in particular, Mealy and and um, Zelnik. I, I knew them both, and they, they were both terrific teachers. And I, I think they were real intellectuals. I mean, I look at the work that I do in the classroom and with graduate students, and I often feel as if I'm. Uh, not really carrying the torch very far. I I remember getting papers back from Zelnick that were covered on every page with uh, many, many very good notes. I think the guy was a a really brilliant teacher, Um, and it's too bad he passed before his time. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how this particular book uh, came into being?
1: Yes, well, um, I wrote a book about the Soviet collapse called Armageddon Averted. Uh, this book came out in 2001, 2002, and one of the things that the book failed to do was to examine the situation in Eastern Europe in depth. Eastern Europe was mentioned. I talked about the role of solidarity in Poland in the early 1980s. I talked about the fall of the Berlin Wall, and its repercussions for events inside the Soviet Union just before it collapsed, uh, but Eastern Europe was not given enough attention So that was one of the motivations. My first book, Armageddon Averted, not enough on Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. The second was that I taught a course with Jan Gross, my colleague at Princeton, who's a specialist on Poland. And he brought his friend, longtime friend from Poland, to sit in with the class, Adam Michnik. (laughs) Michnik was in the Polish opposition for many years and was one of the most courageous and interesting people. Uh, in Poland, against the, working against the communist regime for the longest time. Uh, Michnik, Gross, and I, along with some very, very good graduate students, uh, met every week and discussed sort of what happened in Eastern Europe in the post-World War II period, what this regime was like, these communist regimes, these establishments, and how come they collapsed in 1989. We talked during the class, the seminar each week for three hours, and then we also met outside of class. It was just a fabulous, rich conversation. We debated so many different points. And finally, we said, well, why don't we just write this thing up? Why don't we write up our analysis that's come out of this seminar? And so I took up the task of writing the bulk of the book, and Jan Gross contributed a number of really important sections and ideas. And so the book was really a product of this fortuitous great conversation, the fact that Jan Gross had come to Princeton recently, and the fact that he knew Michnik, and the fact that I had this interest in examining the Eastern European situation in greater depth growing out of my previous book.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I should tell our listeners that, uh, for those of you that don't know very much about the history of historiography, in the 19th century, it used to be quite common for uh, premier historians, senior historians like Stephen, to hold seminars, and then out of those books would come, at the very least, a series of lectures, many of which were published, and uh, in some cases even monographs. So in a sense, this is a terrific return to a kind of purposive work That we no longer do anymore. I was telling Stephen in the pre-interview that in the seminars that I hold, the only product is um, some pretty mediocre papers. I mean, some of them are good, but they never have a kind of consistent theme, something that you could uh, actually write up into a book. And then accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish as historians, and that is um, enlightening the public about what has happened. And, then again, I, just, I, I think that it's a, it's a terrific model for that kind of thing. I, I don't know. I won't speak for you, Stephen, but I don't like to waste time. The things that I write are always for print. I, I don't think of them as kind of exercises because I think of my own role as someone that <clears throat> sheds light on the past for our um, wonderful Republican or Democratic, not in the party sense. Uh, public. So uh, anyway, kudos to you and Jan for putting this together. Let's launch into a discussion of the book. The book has a thesis, as I said, and it has to do with the concept of civil society. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that concept and how marvelously popular it was in, in 1989 and thereafter?
1: Yes, well, this term civil society is a very important term in the academy, in the government, in the foundations and NGOs as a way to understand how the world works. Um, I don't believe that the notion of civil society is used properly, and one of the things the book tries to do is to get away from this term. The term civil society arose in the Scottish Enlightenment in the 18th century, and it was contrasted with the uncivil society or the poorly run state absolutist systems, that were prevalent in Europe at the time and that the Scottish Enlighteners wanted to get away from and build a civil society. The term was revived in the 1970s and especially the early 1980s because a bunch of Marxists, especially at the New School mm-hmm. in Manhattan like Andrew Arado, saw the solidarity eruption against communism as a reincarnation of the idea of civil society. What Arado and the other Frankfurt School Marxists at the New School in New York meant was that Solidarity was going to be anti-communist, but not pro-Western consumerism. They were going to form not a consumer society or a materially oriented society, but a civil society, a third way, something better. The origins of this civil society in Arado's mind were forgotten by other people as they applied civil society not only to solidarity but to any opposition to authoritarian regimes. The confusion arose when people took civil society, a strategy of opposition to authoritarian regimes, as a sociological fact. In other words, They went from, let's try to bring these regimes down by using this concept of civil society as a way to fight these regimes. Let's describe the actual societies living under these regimes as a civil society. The upshot was that 20 people, 70 people, 200 people, 300 people, known as the opposition, the dissidents, the civil society, became a society. Whereas the communist regimes, which were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of officials, policemen, military officers, and their families, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people in the establishment were not looked at, not studied, not taken seriously as a society. However, the hundreds at the most of oppositionists or dissidents became this civil society. (laughs) And so it seemed to me necessary to move away from the imagined civil society to the actually existing real society or the establishment, and we decided to call that the uncivil society. The uncivil society only means that it's a fully formed, fully organized society. It has patronage, networks, universities, all the resources imaginable, career paths. And these people live in neighborhoods close to each other. They socialize together. Their kids go to school together. They are a society, but they are not formed by or constrained by the rule of law. Mm -hmm. Hence, we call them the uncivil
2: society. Mm -hmm.
1: This uncivil society or communist establishment is where we argue the collapse of communism took place, and it's where one needs to
0: focus the analysis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One of my favorite lines in the book, and there are a lot of really good lines, use the expression going bananas, which is one of my favorite uh, expressions. My mom used to use it a lot. I have not yet used it in print, but I will now that you have, uh, is that mm. Eastern Europe was, uh, I guess you say, communist Eastern Europe was full of, well, communists, which I thought was very refreshing. I know that I have trouble uh, explaining to my students that Nazi Germany was full of Nazis and that um, and that uh, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe was full of communists. Americans, for some reason, tend to think that these places were... Uh, somehow occupied by foreign powers or something. I don't know that it was uh, that these establishments were uh, completely foreign to the uh, indigenous political cultures. In Eastern Europe, they were somewhat uh, foreign, but they were a powerful part of uh, the Eastern European and Soviet establishments. Let let me ask this, which is a a kind of a a terminological question. I, I see the rhetorical intent in saying uncivil society, but is it the equivalent of um, elite or hierarchy or dare I even say class?
1: Well, you know, we feel that there's something special about communism, that it's not just a regular run-of-the-mill authoritarianism. The communists have a monopoly on the politics. They have a monopoly on the economy and they have a monopoly on the public sphere. Mm -hmm. They own, manage, run, Absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. There's nothing outside the state. There's nothing outside the regime. And so this makes them, in a way, different from any other authoritarian system. There are many different incarnations of authoritarianism. Most of them have private property, business sectors, small and medium business, as well as large business that's private. Most of them have some forms of censorship, but not total censorship. Very few of them have an official ideology, which is inculcated uh, from the beginning of life all the way through to the end. And so there's something special about the elite or the hierarchy or the establishment under a communist regime. There's a total quality to it in aspiration and The fact that it's a little bit different leads us to think that we can call it the uncivil society. But I don't know if every single elite in an authoritarian regime would be called, in our view, an uncivil society. Let me make one other statement about why this is important. Uh, We tend to have this view in the United States. It's extremely popular, uh, called people power. That is to say, we think that Surging crowds, demanding (laughs) democracy, demanding freedom, can bring down authoritarian regimes. It's a notion very congenial to the American way of thinking. Um, However, in 1989, there were a million people in Tiananmen Square protesting in June 1989, and the communist regime in China is still there 20 years later. Mm -hmm. This past summer in Iran, There were more than 2 million, close to 3 million people in the streets in June at the peak. And that regime, unfortunately, is still there. Mm -hmm. In 1989 in Eastern Europe, the first communist regime that fell was Poland.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And there were absolutely no street demonstrations in Poland in 1989. It was one of the places in Eastern Europe that didn't have street demonstrations. And so we feel that... It's necessary not just to focus on the communist establishment, the uncivil society, but to get away from the model that popular surging crowds, whether they're called dissidents, opposition, civil society, whatever, that popular surging crowds can just bring down these regimes. Mm -hmm. In Ukraine in 2004, there was something that we call the Orange Revolution where a bunch of elites tried to steal an election. They had a fraudulent election, and crowds demonstrated in the streets, very heroically, risking life and limb, and they overturned the regime's attempt to keep the fraudulent election in place. Mm -hmm. In other words, the crowd in Ukraine was able to get their way. However, when they woke up the next day, With the actual results rather than the fraudulent results honored, they still didn't have a judiciary. They still didn't have a civil service. They still didn't have the kind of constitutional rule of law uh, state that is required to have a civil society, in fact. And so the Ukrainians, for all their courage, for all their orange revolution in 2004, were not able to change the fundamental institutions of the country. Mm-hmm. So we focus on the institutions. We focus on the establishment. We move away from uh, the people power, surging crowds. We, however, have great respect for those who were opposed to the communist regime, who did risk life and limb, who in many cases went to jail. Some went to jail for really long periods of time. They were tortured. They suffered. These people were courageous. However, we just don't see that they that those courageous people brought down these regimes. These regimes collapsed internally because the elites were decadent, incompetent, and ideologically um, blinkered.
0: Mm-hmm. I really like your point about the different kinds of authoritarianism because – I think there's a tendency, especially in the American mind, to lump them all into one and to choose a kind of paradigmatic example, uh, something like Nazi Germany or something like Soviet Russia. Uh, One of the things that the book does and does um, with remarkable economy is show that even within the eastern sphere, there were uh, many different kinds of, I guess, one would say political cultures are kinds of authoritarianism. Another point I wanted to make is that this is even true in pre-modern times, um, that there were uh, many different kinds of uh, authoritarianism. I know that in my own field, people tend to lump Muscovite Russia into a a larger category with uh, places like France and England, thinking that Muscovite Russia is kind of – the France of Louis XIV down at the heel a little bit. And I I don't think anything is further from the truth, although this tendency is uh, uh, still around in my tiny little corner of Russian history. So I I think it's important to remember that. And going to these places really does tell you a lot. I remember when I first went to Russia or the Soviet Union in the 80s, and uh, I came back. I'd read a lot of books about it. They didn't really do justice to what I saw on the ground. (laughs) And also this business about totalizing, I think that's one of Foucault's, Major contributions, and these people really did have a kind of pretension toward controlling most everything in the service of their own goals, so I think that 's also something that people should remember. why don 't we uh, begin telling the story of these places uh, by talking about something that's not that's mentioned in the book but it isn't a focus of the book How, how did these uh, uh uncivil societies come to power after World War two <sighs>
1: Well, you have a leveling process. Almost all of Eastern Europe is incorporated into the Nazi empire. They are either annexed and become part of Greater Germany, they are allies, or they are kind of puppet states of Germany. And so Eastern Europe is mostly on the Nazi side during World War II. Much of this is by choice. Some of it is not by choice. In any case, being on the Nazi side, the losing side of the war, discredits the establishments in Eastern Europe. They are removed, destroyed, hung, tried, or they flee. And so this leveling process of association with the right-wing Nazi regime means that the left has a big opening in Eastern Europe as the Soviet army moves in To clear out the Germans, the left, which has resisted in many cases, not all, Nazi rule in the underground, to a certain extent at least, now feels that it's their turn. Now, the left is a pretty big space, and it doesn't mean communists alone. There are socialists, there are differences among the socialists, there are communists, there are differences among the communists. But there's a kind of broad leftist surge in the leveling process. Of the war. The war is a kind of social revolution. This is one of the main points that Jan Gross has contributed to the literature, my co author on the book. Now, within this process, there is the Soviet drive for security. They are not going to allow someone to rise up in Central Europe again and attack them and kill 27 million people like the Nazi uh, assault did. And so Soviet security concerns, combined with the leveling process of the war and the opening to the left, moves the entire political spectrum in Eastern Europe way leftward. Now, in many cases, the communists have a solid but, non- but small minority. In other cases, they're slightly bigger. It's clear that you have to look at each case, case by case. Let's take Romania. When the Soviet army moves into Romania, in fact, as late as 1947, there are no more than about a hundred communists in Bucharest. There are probably a thousand communists overall in all of Romania. The communist establishment in Romania is minuscule, microscopic. They have been killed in the right wing dictatorships jails during the interwar period or they've been murdered by Stalin in his own purges. So this establishment total of no more than a thousand communists in Romania is able to impose communist rule obviously with Soviet assistance. They're very confident however despite their small size. They feel that history is on their side, that they are the movement of history incarnate That they are right, that their theories are correct, and if they have to murder, deport, lie, whatever it takes, that's okay, because they are the movement of history. Now, if you look at the Romanian establishment many decades later in the 1980s, it's colossal. Forget about the 1,000 Romanian communists you had in 1947. Now you have 38,000 just in the Romanian secret police, the Mm -hmm. Securitate. You have hundreds of thousands of people making up the Romanian communist establishment, but they lack the confidence. The irony is is that they're gigantic, but they're afraid. They, They look around and they see that communism has failed as a modernization project. Western Europe is getting richer. The gap between Western Europe and Eastern Europe is expanding, it's not closing. The communist program, a leap into modernity, a better form of modernity than capitalism offered, has obviously failed by the 1980s. So these gigantic establishments have lost their confidence, even though they control all the resources, they control the military and the police. There's a demoralization that sets in. Within the communist establishment, there's a demoralization. Mm -hmm. The German case is even more stark. Because in the case of East Germany, they have West Germany. They have another Germany, which is capitalist, right in front of their face. Moreover, they can watch West German television every night. All of East Germany has access to West German television, except for a small area around Dresden, which is known as the Valley of the Clueless. (laughs) So these East Germans are watching. West Germany. Berlin, East and West Berlin are face to face. And as I say, the gap is widening. West Germany in the 1950s grows. Its GDP grows more than 10% every single year. More than 10% every year in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. West Germany is like the China of the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And the East Germans are flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. So As time moves on, these tiny establishments grow, but they become less confident and demoralized. Mm -hmm. It's within this demoralization that we look pretty deeply, and this is what we find. They came up with a plan, a kind of trick in 1970. East Germany and Poland began it in 1970, and Romania followed a little bit later. And the trick was this. They would borrow money in foreign currency from the West. And this Western hard currency they would use, that they were going to borrow, they would use to buy technology and other important capital goods. And it was that Western technology which would finally allow them to make the leap, the leap into modernity that they've been trying to make since the late 1940s. They borrowed the money They spent some of it on technology and capital goods. They spent a lot of it on mollifying their own populations who wanted the consumer goods that Western Europe had. And they spent a lot of it, of course, on themselves because that's what elites do. So time passed. They borrowed the money in foreign currency, but the leap uh, beyond the stage that they were at never happened. Mm -hmm. Geirich, the leader of Poland in the 70s, Gierick. His slogan was build a second Poland, which meant double GDP in the 70s, but it didn't happen. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: However, they still owed the money, and moreover, they had to pay it in foreign currency. They couldn't pay it in Polish Lotties or East German Marks. They had to pay it in West German Marks or American dollars. But if you don't have anything to sell on world markets for foreign currency, then you can't pay. Mm-hmm. back these loans that you took out in foreign currency. So they became stuck in a bind. The only way they could pay the loans back that they owed to the capitalists was by taking out more loans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the East Germans, the Poles, the Romanians, they got stuck in a kind of Ponzi scheme, being able to pay back their original loans only by taking out new loans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, Poland had to pay $2 billion a year in foreign currency just to meet the interest payments, not to pay down the cap, the main part of the debt. Mm -hmm. And so by 1989, collectively, Eastern Europe owed $90 billion Mm -hmm. to Western bankers and governments. Now, today in the United States, we throw a trillion dollars down the rat hole, (laughs) and we don't seem to think much of it. But $90 billion for Eastern Europe these little countries back in 1989 was real money, yeah. and so they were stuck. They felt demoralized, and worse, they were not only falling farther behind the capitalists, but they owed everything to the capitalists, and they couldn't pay.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, I, I have a lot of many questions there. It's funny you mentioned the East German example. When I talk about this to my students, I always think of these twin studies that psychologists like to – um, you know, you know, um, conduct where uh, by accident one twin is put in circumstances X and the other twin is in circumstance Y and everything is held equal so they can see how they do and uh, I think the East Germans understood that uh, implicitly that they had a twin and the twin was doing a lot better than they did. I think this is also probably true of the the polls who remembered very much. What One thing that you didn't mention that I think that many of our listeners would have expected you to mention, and I know many historians talk about this as well, is the role of the Soviet Union in all this. In fact, I think over the last 15 minutes, we haven't mentioned the Soviet Union, which I find refreshing. But um, you tend to downplay in this way the role of the Soviet Union in the uh, building and then collapse of these Eastern European regimes. Am I wrong about that? Have I overstated the case?
1: It's it's exactly the right question. So here we go. We're in debt. We failed. We can't pay. It's not working. So what? What's the big deal? Who cares? We have almost 600,000 Soviet troops stationed on our soil, 400,000 in East Germany alone. Every time any of these East European regimes got in trouble, the Soviets cracked down. And restored order, Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968. There was a kind of what-me-worry attitude inside these regimes, despite the demoralization. However, something peculiar happened to them. In 1985, a new leader came to power in the Kremlin, Mikhail Gorbachev, and he started to make statements about the fact that the East Europeans had to think about maybe tending to their own affairs. Nobody really understood what he meant. Nobody believed that Moscow, of all places, would allow these East European regimes to get in trouble. However, in December 1988, at the UN, Gorbachev made a big speech in which he pretty much said that the Soviets would not intervene in Eastern Europe. In other words, that the old Brezhnev-era doctrine of using force as a last resort to uphold communism in Eastern Europe, that old Brezhnev doctrine no longer applied. Into 1989, Gorbachev kept saying the same thing. Now, put yourself in the shoes of these East European communist establishments. They're stuck. They're in this massive economic bind. Their trump card is always Moscow. But now Moscow is telling them It's not going to come to their rescue. Moreover, Moscow is also undergoing tremendous internal reforms, reformed communism, socialism with a human face, just like Czechoslovakia in 1968. And so the East Europeans begin to embargo Soviet periodicals. The communist regimes in Eastern Europe are afraid of allowing their own people to read the propaganda coming out
2: of Moscow at this point.
1: (laughs) So everything's been turned on them. It's as if somebody moved the (laughs) goalposts. And now they're in trouble. Their backstop, their guarantee, has become a battering ram, knocking out their front door.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And it's no accident that a few months after Gorbachev has announced that these regimes are on their own, that they collapse. So the role of the Soviet Union is tremendous, but things don't collapse that are strong. Things don't collapse where the elites are really resolute and ready to hold on, to use force no matter what like they were in China in June 1989 in Tiananmen Square. So first you have to set in the demoralization story. Then you bring in this really important role of the Soviets, switching from backstop to battering ram. And then the regimes in Eastern Europe were left naked in front of their people. Still, this didn't mean they were going to give up. Just because you're demoralized and just because you're, backstop has become a battering ram, doesn't mean you're going to walk away from power. Mm -hmm. None of the East European regimes gave up power willingly. They had to be pushed. They had to be shoved out the door. And this is what happened. The street demonstrations, the clamor to travel to Western uh, Berlin or Western Germany, the agitation around the Hungarian ethnic pastor in Romania. All of these incidents built up unexpectedly into these snowballs which we call political bank runs. Mm -hmm. When the regimes were tested, they were shown to be hollow and they were overrun and collapsed almost instantaneously. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Uh, I would say that uh, your training in differential equations is a, of some use here because this is a, a what we call a nonlinear function, I think, isn't it? Yes, yeah, right. It's a nonlinear Perfect. function, right there. Um, <clears throat> again, uh, so, so that uh, is a terrific explanation of the role the Soviet Union played, I think, and it didn't play the role that I, I think most people believe that it did. Um, I really like the, the the backstop battering ram analogy, and we'll remember that and we'll um, use it in my lectures without acknowledgment, if you'll permit me. Is that okay? It certainly thank, is okay. Thank you very much. No, and so then there's another thing that you didn't mention that you know every American will remember this in the American mind. The history of the fall of Eastern Europe is uh, lashed to the mast of Ronald Reagan standing uh, before the Brandenburg Gate, saying, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." That hasn't been mentioned. Why hasn't that been mentioned?
1: Well, um, I dealt with Reagan's role in my previous book, which focused on the Soviet Union explicitly called Armageddon Averted. The Eastern European story, this uncivil society book, the latest one, um, doesn't really mention the Reagan stuff. However, the earlier book did, and Reagan did play a role. He was important, but not usually for the reasons we think. Often Reagan is credited with bankrupting the Soviet Union. He spent a lot on the American military. He built it up forcing the Soviets to respond, and they were unable to respond. So goes the thinking on Reagan's role. Especially important in this view, the so-called Star Wars or SDI, Mm -hmm. the Strategic Defense Initiative. Mm -hmm. However, I've looked at the Soviet military industrial complex documentation. We don't have all of it by any means, but we have pretty good peaks inside the Soviet military industrial complex, and there is absolutely no evidence. That they felt that Reagan was bankrupting them or that they took SDI, Star Wars, seriously. Mm-hmm. The KGB's internal analyses of Star Wars uh, said that this is not going to work. It's a fantasy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the, the KGB got this right, by the way. Mm-hmm. Not they didn't get everything right by any means, Uh, but they got the analysis of Star Wars right. The Soviet Union was good at military stuff. It was the one thing that the Soviet Union was really good at. The Soviet Union was not good at refrigerators, washing machines, silk stockings, children's toys, freedom. Those were the things that the Soviet Union failed at, and it was crushed in a daily life competition. Uh, with the West. It was not crushed really in a military competition. So the usual explanation for Reagan's role is off base, but here's the actual role that Reagan played, which is very important. And I think Jack Matlock, the former ambassador to the Soviet Union, uh, one of the most important analysts of the late Soviet period, especially Reagan, Gorbachev affairs, Jack Matlock taught me this. Reagan was a lifelong anti communist. He had tremendous anti communist bona fides, and that enabled him to enter into negotiations with this communist Gorbachev in Moscow. And as a result, these arms control negotiations, this disarmament stuff that Reagan, the lifelong anti communist, had the credibility to do, gave Gorbachev a lot of slack and running room. Mm-hmm. Reagan, as it were, gave Gorbachev a lot of the rope that Gorbachev used to hang himself. Mm-hmm. Unintentionally, Gorbachev was not trying to destroy the Soviet system. Mm-hmm. He was, in fact, trying to re-energize the Soviet system. Mm-hmm. Very big role in recognizing what Gorbachev was up to and in giving him some of the room at and- the credibility to do that, in many cases against Reagan's own advisors.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, uh, we've interviewed um, people that have written about uh, precisely this topic here on the show, and I think they would all. Concur with you. I mean, what happened at Reykjavik and other places during those negotiations was really quite astounding. It astounded people on the ground, it astounded people all over the world. They really couldn't believe that it was happening. Um, And it did give Gorbachev a lot of running room, as you put it. That's a nice metaphor as well. Let me ask you about this. Um, One of the things that you you mentioned early on in the interview, uh, and I think one of the things that many Americans would Uh, include in a list of things that was important for the collapse of Eastern Europe would be resistance movements. Um, I know that there were some, and most Americans know about solidarity. Uh, We interviewed um, Podrick Kenny here on the show, and uh, he's written books about these resistance movements. Uh, One of the things that your book points out is that in most of these places, Poland is is being the exception, that these resistance movements were tiny um, until I guess, quite late. And even then, I don't know if we can call them resistance movements so much as I don't know the right word for them. They are sudden emanations of some feeling. They're they're hardly organized. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, you know, as I said, um, the the people who resisted communism were in most cases very courageous and many of them suffered. And this was important. However, I do not believe that we can attribute the downfall of communism to their resistance. They were small numbers, little groups, they commanded very few resources. Many of them were exiled or forced out of the country, a lot of them were put in prison. They did not threaten the regimes, with the exception only of Poland. Let's take the case of Havel, Vaclav Havel, the playwright in Czechoslovakia. Havel. His whole life resisted the communist regime. He he suffered as a result. However, when Adam Michnik, the person who was in our seminar, one of the friends of Jan Gross who came to join our seminar at Princeton, out of which this book came, when Adam Michnik was elected to the Polish parliament in 1989 and had a diplomatic passport and traveled to Prague and told his friend Havel that The jig is up, communism is falling. Havel scoffed and said, no way, Czechoslovakia is different. This was in the summer of 1989. (laughs) In the fall of 1989, Havel came out against street demonstrations. He was afraid that if people went out into the street in large numbers, it would serve as a pretext for the communist regime to crack down and to bloody the people. So a few months later, of course, Havel was president of Czechoslovakia. Now, it's a great story. The crowds, Havel to the castle, they were chanting, Havel becoming president, the playwright, the dissident, overthrowing, taking over the communist regime. But the demonstrations in Czechoslovakia began in November 1927. Uh, November 27th, mm-hmm. 1989, they were very late in the game. And as I said, Havel was not a leading force in terms of street demonstrations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we need to be very careful about the facts, even if we're very impressed with Havel as a person. Mm-hmm. In the case of Poland, you have a real opposition. It's the only example under communism where you have a major organized opposition, which controls physical spaces, publications, an alternative moral and political system that is in stalemate with the communist regime. But let's remember, there was a crackdown in Poland in December 1981, 5,000 people were arrested in a single night, Solidarity, the uh, trade union, was driven underground, and throughout the 1980s Solidarity had a small barely kept alive existence many of its activists were in jail what happened in 1980 in Poland as I said was that the communist regime which was very good at crackdowns still had no answer for the economic problems it still owed the money to the West it still was unable to energize to make dynamic their own economy and so They were in this bind of successful crackdown against the opposition, but failure to re-energize the communist project. Mm -hmm. The communist tree ceased leafing, Mm -hmm. and the members of the establishment were left with going to the remnants of Solidarity and trying to do a deal. Walenska had won a Nobel Prize, and he was being received by heads of state abroad, even though he was a non-person in Poland. And the Polish communists saw him as a way to deal with the loan problem. Mm -hmm. Maybe the Western loans would be forgiven or reduced (laughs) if Walesa was involved. (laughs) Also, they could impose price hikes at home, which are really just wage cuts,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: on the Polish working class Mm -hmm. if Solidarity would get behind them. Mm -hmm. So the regime entered into a roundtable or bargaining or negotiation with Solidarity. The regime had no intention of giving up power. Solidarity had no intention of taking power. Valenza was so afraid, he didn't want to shake the hands of the interior minister, the chief of police, the one who put himself and all these others in jail, General Kishak, because it would be recorded on, on TV and forever would show him compromise, shaking the hands of this evil communist interior minister. It was very hard for Solidarity to enter into the round table. In any case, the negotiations began in early 1989, and this is what happened. The communists said, we're going to do a deal. We're going to legalize you. But this is what you're going to give. re-legalize Solidarity, the trade union. Solidarity had reached 10 million members at its height in 1980 81. It never again rose to more than 900,000, or 1 million, even after it was relegalized in 1989. In any case, we'll re-legalize you, but this is what you've got to give us. We're going to have elections to give us legitimacy, but they're not going to be real elections. Two-thirds of the seats are going to be set aside for us. One-third of the seats are going to be contested, and you guys can contest those one-third seats. We will therefore have a majority, and the parliament will elect a new president. The president won't be directly elected, be elected from the parliament. And it will be our leader, the communist leader, General Jaruzelski. Mm -hmm. That was the deal. Now in the negotiations, however, the communists were very stupid. One of the things they did was to not have proportional representation, but to have single district or single mandate representation. Now the communists were gaining 20 to 30 percent in secret polls. So they felt they would win 20 to 30 percent of the one-third contested seats Mm -hmm. on top of the two-thirds that were set aside uncontested. Mm -hmm. So they would have an overwhelming majority. The election would be a communist victory. Mm -hmm. But because they did not do proportional representation, this was their own choice. They did the 51% majority in the first round, otherwise a runoff in the second round. Not a single communist won. (laughs) (laughs) Moreover, even in the districts where they ran unopposed – They didn't gain 51% of the vote, and therefore didn't get elected.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But there was no opponent to run against in a runoff. Mm -hmm. So the regime's very own Politburo couldn't get elected by the regime's (laughs) own electoral scheme that they introduced. Moreover, the communists gave an upper house, a senate. Uh, The Polish parliament only had a lower house, the same, or the diet, the lower house. This is where they were going to keep the two-thirds, and allow the one-third to be contested, but they introduced the Senate without Solidarity asking for it, they said, here, in exchange for you allowing our General Jaruzelski to be elected president with this pseudo-mandate of fake elections, we'll introduce the upper house, the Senate, and by the way, we'll allow all 100 seats in the upper house to be contested, something Solidarity did not ask for again. Well, all 100 seats. Actually, 99 were won by Solidarity in the Senate, and one was won by an independent, the kind of Joe Lieberman of Mm -hmm. Poland, who sided with Solidarity (laughs) in the election. So they had 100 seats out of 100 in in the upper house. They won almost every seat that was allowed to be contested in the lower house. And, moreover, the communists failed to win even the seats that were uncontested because of the communist rule of 51% or more single mandate Uh in the electoral
2: process. Uh
1: So the regime had accidentally organized a plebiscite for or against communist rule, and Solidarity had, reluctantly entering into these negotiations, accidentally won the plebiscite. (laughs) And Solidarity was standing there with this one election – But still they were afraid to take power, or share power with the communist regime, because it would discredit them. Michnik himself came up with the solution. He said his slogan was, "Um, uh, your president, our prime minister, which meant that Jaruzelski would be allowed to become president, just like the communist regime wanted from the beginning, uh, but that the prime minister, the head of the uh, government's cabinet, would be a solidarity or non-communist. Mm-hmm. This was the first non-communist prime minister anywhere in Eastern Europe since 1948. Mm-hmm. And the election took place in June 4th, 1989, the same day that the Tiananmen Square crackdown happened in China. Mm -hmm. So Poland accidentally broke through without street demonstrations, even though it had an opposition. It took the communist regime to invite solidarity to a roundtable, and it took the communist regime's incompetence and mismanagement of their own fake electoral process to to bring a reluctant solidarity to power. Mm-hmm. in poland in 1989 mm-hmm. that's the story that jan gross and i tell in the book
0: yeah that's exactly right and it's a terrific story too it always goes to show that i mean a story like this goes to show that there is uh, there's always a, a kind of a backstory if you know what i mean I, I know that when you read the headlines in the new york times and other places that you think you understand what happened and um as someone who's investigated what happened you never really do until, you, until actually sometime afterwards. I want to ask you about another influential interpretation. We're kind of running out of time, but I really wanted to get to this. Uh, and that is the interpretation under which the communist authorities in Eastern Europe co-opted nationalism in order to create a base for their power. And And this thesis is associated with uh, Roman Sporluk, uh, who, who is a brilliant scholar and, and, a, and a person I know quite well. Uh, in light of your own interpretation... Um, How does that theory, if I've stated it at all accurately, how does it fare?
1: Well, the two great myths about Eastern Europe in 1989, one is the freedom, the surging crowds demanding freedom and getting it, the march to freedom story that's very popular in the United States. The other myth that's really popular, however, it's popular in Eastern Europe, is the myth of the Stolen Revolution. That is that the communists did this on purpose. They organized the revolution to junk the communist system in order to keep their own power and in order to take over the property and become wealthy. That is to say, you look around Eastern Europe after 1989, and all the people in positions of authority have some type of communist roots, with few exceptions, Poland being the most important exception because they have the alternative oppositionally, But even in Poland, a lot of the previous communists did very well after 1989. They used their connections and their know-how to take over the property, to start the businesses, to acquire wealth, and to get extremely wealthy in many cases. So the Stolen Revolution thesis is very, very popular in Eastern Europe. The problem with this stolen revolution thesis or the idea that the communists tricked everybody and took these communist regimes down on purpose is that, once again, there's no evidence for it. When you look inside the communist regimes all throughout 1989, you see none of them knew that these regimes were collapsing. None of them wanted these regimes to collapse. In fact, their ability to stay in power and to steal and live well, was predicated on the continuation of these regimes. Mm -hmm. The downfall of communism surprised the communists, surprised the uncivil society, as much as it surprised the rest of us. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that they didn't use these connections to enrich themselves after the fact, but it was not a plot, it was not a plan, it was not a calculation before the fact. Mm -hmm. It was just an unintended consequence. History is full of contingency. It's full of unintended consequences. It's full of stuff that nobody predicted until things happen, and then of course everybody predicts it retrospectively, <laughs> and it all becomes inevitable, like the communists bringing down their own system, or like the crowds marching for freedom, and then the communist regimes just melt. Right. We we have to we have to follow the institutions, the states, the police, the militaries. The way places are governed, and we have to follow their thinking and their mistakes, their stupidities, their accidents, contingencies, as much as we can.
0: Yeah, no, I mean I think that's exactly right. You see a lot of this mentality in analyses of the uh, of actually both the Gulf Wars that there was something greater going on than bungling, and and in, I guess in a way that there there was something greater going on, but that something is a, a very complicated story of personalities and institutions and. Misunderstandings and just lots and lots of different contingent events happening, absolutely unpredictable, that lead to something that looks like it makes sense. You know, humans are um, great at identifying patterns where there are none. Actually, my wife's a mathematician, and one of the biggest problems in uh, creating algorithms that create random numbers is that humans will get an odd result from a random number generator, you know. Ten will come up twice in a row and they'll see a pattern and they'll say that it's not actually random at all, but it is. And it's difficult to convince humans that that these accidents happen and, and that really very, you know, one of the first rules of probability I know when I studied it was that really odd things happen all the time. It's just that, uh, you know, we, we tend to see patterns there, they're, and, but they're completely accidental. So I, I think that you make a, an extraordinarily good point there. And we are coming to understand exactly what happened in, in 1989 in Eastern Europe. I would recommend that anyone um, read this book. Uh, it, uh, it it really is a ter- terrific um, exposition of, of the ideas that Stephen has laid out today. And I think it would be suitable in any, um, for example, introductory Western Civ course to kind of set the record straight. And as I say, it has a thesis, and that's terrific. Students love that. Uh, it is, uh, I won't say it's take no prisoners, but it, um, it, um, it is it's sharp at certain moments. May I say that? Is that okay, Stephen?
1: Uh, yes. I think it's necessary when making an argument to state it as clearly and yes. strongly as possible yeah. and to show how it undoes the counter-arguments or the views that are yes. held by others. Yes, I, 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 I think I, that's necessary. But let, let's remember, the downfall of communism is a great thing. However it happened, whatever the role of structures, whatever the role of human agency, however we explain it, it's it's only a good thing that... Eastern Europe is no longer living under communism. There are many disappointments. The people who live there are disappointed. The expectations were colossal. Things did not turn out as most people hoped. But nonetheless, 1989 was a moment of triumph.
0: Yeah, No, I mean, I I, I agree with you completely, and I try to relate this to my students. I'm always reminded of the first time, again, that I was in the Soviet Union. This was in the 80s, and I remember taking the train from Petersburg to Finland, of all places, to Helsinki. We don't think of Helsinki as one of the uh, bastions of wealth and uh, freedom, prosperity, and so on and so forth. But I remember taking the train across the Helsinki and thinking that somebody turned the lights on. That it was just a a remarkable difference. Um, And uh, I I kind of... I, I. I hope that the people of Eastern Europe um, can come to experience all that. Although you know our way of life is not perfect by any means, but I agree with you completely that uh, it is it is a wonderful thing that uh, that all of that is gone. Um, Stephen, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and I really appreciate it. Um, I would like to close with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What is the next project?
1: Yes, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, I have a couple of things in the hopper. I have a short book on the Soviets in Afghanistan and the third world, uh, which is the kind of um, end of the trilogy that began with Armageddon averted now on civil society. And there's a third one uh, which goes into the Soviet war in Afghanistan in depth and then shows it vis-a-vis Soviet third world interaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's almost finished. I have a larger project called Stalin's World, which is a history of the world from Stalin's desk. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's never been a desk like Stalin's before. No. <laughs> He's man- he managed an Hollywood, Wall Street, and Washington all rolled into one, and moreover as a single person. He was responsible for all culture, for foreign policy, for the domestic dictatorship and political economy. It's amazing the stuff that crossed his desk and the amount of stuff that he saw and did. And so I try to describe this regime from the inside, from the vantage point of Stalin's desk. It's called Stalin's World, Uh or the view of the world out from Stalin's office.
0: Uh Yeah, no, that's a – both of those are absolutely terrific uh, projects. Um, The Soviets peddled a a kind of model of modernity in the third world reasonably successfully, uh, and I don't think the history of that has ever been written. And then the business about Stalin kind of reminds me of Philip II. I guess he might give Stalin a run for his money because Philip II – tried to run everything. I know that the word on the street is that Philip II... Uh, spent something like 14 or 15 hours a day at his desk, managing everything all over the world, from the new world to the old world. So I'll be really interested to see that book, and I hope that we can have you on the show when both of those are finished, if you'll do us that favor. We've been talking to Stephen Kotkin today, and he has written a terrific book, uh, Uncivil Society, 1989, and the Implosion of the Communist Establishment. He wrote that with Jan Gross. Uh, Stephen, thank you very much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Stephen Kotkin about his new book, Uncivil Society, 1989 and the Implosion of the Communist Establishment, with a contribution from Jan Gross. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope that you have a great week.